Good morning. Better? You can all hear me? Good. I'm Teresa Moyer. I have the really unique privilege of being the associate pastor here. And uh, boy, has my life changed since... I joined this church. It's pretty awesome. We just returned from a somewhat rainy weekend down in Ocean City with all our leadership, most of our leadership team. Some folks couldn't quite make it. We had a great time. But you know, when seven or eight couples, about 20 people and children are sharing one large house, there are moments where you have to just compromise a little, right? Like you need to use the bathroom, but everybody else is in there. You just have to, you know, subdue your own needs for a moment to take care of the rest of the people. Sometimes that kind of compromise is lovely, right? It causes love and care for other people. Um, and the other thing that was a real highlight for me this weekend was that Chloe Mel and I found a box of dad jokes. And we sat there telling dad jokes to one another. So here's a dad joke about compromise, okay? Why can't you compromise with a veggie burger? Never meet in the middle. <laughs> Excellent. So there can be a really lovely way of compromising that shows love, but there's also a bad kind of compromising, right? Compromising on our values, compromising on the things that really matter in life, compromising on God's truth. And I have to tell you, many churches I know are listening to the voice of our culture and shifting from the purity of God's words to the beliefs and practices of the current culture. A woman in my ceramics class and I were just discussing what to do with some of these issues. And they're leaning towards compromising with the culture rather than staying with the truth of God's word. And while cultural relevance is really important, we like to be relevant to our culture. Our leadership team refuses to compromise on God's truth because we believe there's where life is. It's the truth that sets us free. And when we compromise on God's truth, we enter into some sort of bondage that we don't even realize we're in until God reveals it. This is one of the reasons I love this sermon series. We have been doing a sermon series called The Mystery of Revelation. For about a month, we've been studying the book of Revelation so far. We've gotten through about a chapter and a half. But I have to say that Rich has done an amazing job with this very difficult book. He has clarified that the book of Revelation is symbolic that through historical context, we can actually come to understand what the symbolism meant to the people of the day. And that revelation is about Jesus himself. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. We can better know who Jesus is as the king of eternity, as well as our good shepherd, the judge over all humanity, as well as our brother. What have we learned so far? Well, the first thing that impacted me was in chapter one. And I want you to pay careful attention to this because this is going to be why I say what I say for the rest of the sermon. In Revelation, it says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and to be priests to serve his God and Father, to him be the glory forever and ever. Have you ever considered that's what our lives are? That's what Jesus died to do? To make us a kingdom and to make us priests 
unto his father. It's a great honor to serve the father as his priests. What is a priest? A priest is somebody who actually is authorized by Jesus' blood to minister in sacred things, who acts as a mediator between men and God. So there's two jobs there. We, we minister to God and we become the connecting point between people who don't know God and God himself. And as priests of his kingdom, how we live and what we embrace and what we believe and what we do matters, not just to God, but to others as well. Because we could misrepresent God to the world and people's lives will be lost. Compromise comes at a great cost. See, Jesus... In, in actually Paul, in the book of Corinthians, made it very clear. He said that Jesus died for us all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And that goes for all of us who gave our lives to Jesus, not just church leadership. We don't compromise God's way with the ways of our culture because that compromise has a terrible cost. Now, in the letters to the seven churches, we have to remember when we're looking at the, the, the book of Revelation that Christianity was still young in the world. It was less than 100 years old. And Jesus comes and appears to John and speaks truth about what it's all about. In the letters to the, in the, letters to the seven churches, Jesus is shaping priests for his father, by giving them powerful evaluations of how they're doing, living out the kingdom life, right? You know, you get a new job, you work it for a couple years, your boss sits you down and says, all right, here's the three-year review. And a good leader starts out with the good stuff. This is what you're doing well, but here's the stuff we have to work on. And that's what the letters to the seven churches are about. In Ephesus, he praises his people for their hard work and perseverance and for not tolerating wicked people, but he's upset with them. Do you remember why? Because they lost their first love. Lost their first love. It broke my heart to learn that there's really no significant church in Ephesus anymore. And, if, and the Ephesians were known for their great love for God and others. History shows that they did not learn from what Jesus said. Last week, we learned about his letter to the church in Smyrna, where Jesus had no criticism for them at all because they were remaining true to him under terrible pressures of persecution. The church of Smyrna was willing to go to prison and die for Jesus. I'd like to be able to say I would do that. But I tell you, holding up under social or cultural pressure can be hard. I like to be loved. And it's tough to stand for the truth when everybody else is going another way. And you're labeled as being hard or cruel or you know, thought, heartless, because you believe God's ways are true. Rich said last week, one of the ways to avoid persecution is simply to blend in. Don't stand out as different from anybody else around. If we have to be disobedient to God to do that, we need to count the cost of compromise because people's eternal lives are on the line and maybe ours. As American Christians, we want to be relevant to our culture so that we can be vital agents in God's kingdoms. But if we get too cozy with our culture, we might compromise God's ways. One pastor I listened to said, if the church becomes so much like the world, the world will have nowhere to go when it needs the church. 
compromise, you know, actually dilutes our power to change people's lives. And the world needs the church. We're a kingdom of priests unto God. And what we do matters. And this is exactly what Jesus wants to tell his church at Pergamum. Um, could you put the title slide up, please? The mystery of revelation, the cost of compromise is what we're going to be looking at today. And I have to be honest, Jesus' words to some of his people at Pergamum were very sharp. Let us learn from this history so we are not doomed to repeat it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you completely clueless how to please you until we encounter your word and your spirit. And then we need to change. And change is sometimes really hard, Lord. So I pray today that you would open our ears and give us ears to hear what you're saying, not just in your word, but how that word applies in our lives today. And I ask it in Jesus' name. So in order to understand what life was like for Christians in first century Pergamum, I want to take a look at its culture so you know what they were dealing with, okay? Like other cities we've studied, Pergamum is, loaded, is uh, located in modern-day Turkey. It's the crossroads between the Middle East and modern Europe. It's about 82 miles northeast of Ephesus, so that's how they got Christianity into their area, the, the books of Paul, the writings of Paul, and visitations. It was founded in the third century, and it literally means elevated one. It's about 1,000 feet in elevation and had over 150 residents. You can put that slide up. At the time of John's letter in 95, 96 AD, it was Rome's capital province of Asia. The Roman historian of the day, Pliny the Elder, calls Pergamum the most famous place in Asia. On the hillside of the Acropolis is a steep Greek theater, you can put that one up, yep, with 80 rows of seats that would have accommodated up to 10,000 spectators. Parchment was invented in Pergamum. The library there was so um, full, it had 200 scrolls. So education, writing, culture, these are really important things in Pergamum. There was a large acropolis with many temples to various gods and the deified emperor because the emperor was considered a god. And there were places to burn sacrifices to all of them. Now, what I'm about to share is kind of hard to hear. If you are sensitive um, to disgusting, horrible ways that people can treat each other, you might want to just put hands over your ears. But there was a hollow bronze bull. It was called the brazen bull in which sacrifices were placed up there in that little altar in the center of, the, of that Acropolis building. The bull was hollow, and the sacrifice, whether it was uh, an animal or a human, was placed inside of this bull, shut, and a fire was lit underneath. And they were slowly roasted to death. Now it gets even worse. They engineered this so that there were pipes coming out of the bull's mouth. So the cries of the sacrifice were heard throughout the city. They worshipped Zeus, 
Athena, Dionysus, Demeter, Hera, and Asclepius. Now, Asclepius is the Greek god of healing, and he's kind of important in the story of Pergamum because the Asclepion was a spa, a hospital, a sanctuary. There were hot springs. There were healing baths. There were mud treatments. People came from all over the region, including the emperor, to take the healing that Asclepius offered. Here's the ritual. You'd be drugged, brought through a labyrinth of tunnels where there were um, prostitutes that were part of temple worship. So you'd participate in this sexual acts. And then you would go into this open sanctuary where the drugged participants would have snakes crawling all over their bodies. Yeah? And then in the morning when they woke up, whatever dreams they had, the priests would interpret and give a curse. Who thinks this stuff up? I mean, the enemy of God is bizarre. And the things that his ways inspire people to do are wildly strange. Take a look at this symbol. You recognize this symbol? This is this, the rod of Asclepius. How about that? We still use it in medical fields today. And those of you Christians, because I'm sharing this with folks, and they're like, no, no, no. That's because Moses held up the stick and the snake in the desert, and people looked to him and were healed. And I'm like, what a ripoff of God's stuff that Asclepius, all these years later, would do, would, would, you know, do what Moses did. See, the enemy cannot create anything. He can only imitate, and he can only distort. It's unbelievable. You can take that down. So Pergamum also had the extra honor of being the Asian center of emperor worship. Feasting on sacrificial meat and fornication were a large part of emperor worship and pagan worship. And monogamy was unheard of in the Roman culture. Completely unheard of. Theologian Kuletuniste, you like that? wrote of the social pressures to participate in eating meat sacrifice. So this is, this is what they were up against if they did not go through these rituals. Both practices, fornication with temple prostitutes and eating meat sacrificed to gods, were a full social and economic function in Greco-Roman societies. If you were a part of a trade guild, you had to worship the gods of that guild. So this was just not sort of like, we'll just stay away from those people. This was an integral part of life in Pergamum. And refusing to worship the emperor, as Rich said last week, Domitian, his reign was punishable by a horrific death and possibly the death in that bull. Christians in Pergamum had a lot to contend with. Let's take a look at what Jesus was going to say to his followers to strengthen them and to cleanse them with his truth. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I told you Jesus' words to Pergamum were sharp. Compared to the other two letters, this starts out kind of scary. I mean, Ephesus was greeted from the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the lampstands. That's the presence of God. He's always with us. Smyrna was greeted by he's the first and the last, the one who died and was risen again so they wouldn't fear death. Pergamon is greeted by the one who has the double-edged sword. And if you don't know Roman history, the double-edged sword was a Roman weapon. They knew what this meant. It was created by Rome. It was so sharp on both sides that anything it touched, it cut deeply. The power of the sword was a phrase every Pergamene would know. 
It meant that whoever had the power of the sword wielded the power of life and death over everyone in their jurisdiction. And because Pergamos was the seat of the imperial power in Asia, not Europe, the proconsul, the, the under emperor, was pos uh, also possessed the power of the sword. So there they are, knowing they're under Rome's sword. And they, if they don't obey, they're going to be cut. And Jesus shows up and says, uh-uh, I'm the one. I'm the one who has the power of the double-edged sword, not the emperor. Remember when he was on earth, he told his followers, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body. This is a picture of Jesus. It's hard to see. You can leave that up there. I'm going to keep referring back to it. Here's another thing that we see in Hebrews about the power of God's word. It says it divides sharper than any double-edged sword. The word of God penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And Jesus was bringing his word. Did you get it? Sword. Ah, all right, another dad joke. He was bringing his word, which is the double-edged sword coming out of his mouth in the first chapter that we read earlier. He's judging the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart of a culture, dividing between the soul and the spirit. And he's judging the people that live there, helping them see truth from error. Because Jesus doesn't want to cut everybody. He wants people to recognize what is real and true and then make a choice to follow him. Right? He doesn't want to cut us. Now, like any good leader, Jesus begins his evaluation with praise. You can put the next slide up. He says, I know where you live. I've seen your life. And it's where Satan has his throne. And that you remain true to my name. You didn't renounce your faith in me. Not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Jesus saw Pergamum as a place from which Satan ruled, his very throne. I want you to take a look at this um, picture. This is a, um, a picture of the altar of Zeus. And in the, from the elevated, if you're like flying over it, it would look like a throne. And this is where the uh, worship of Zeus happened. Now, Jesus could have been referring to emperor worship or Zeus worship, but in any case, he's referring to the reality that this city is focusing on somebody else other than him as God. You can take it down. He praises them for remaining true to his name in such a difficult place. A society with pagan ritual practices at the center of commerce, business, society, medicine, law, and they never renounced his name. Thumbs up. Even in times of brutal martyrdom, like the kind Antipas suffered. Now, Antipas, we don't know who he is. He, he was only mentioned here in the Bible. But Eastern Orthodox tradition says that he was an Asclepius priest who became a follower of Jesus and eventually became the bishop of Pergamum. Legend says that he, he refused to renounce his commitment to Jesus and they put him in the bull. And, the, and it goes on to say, the legend goes on to say, but instead of the cries of misery coming out of the bull, Antipas was heard to be praying 
for the church in Pergamum that it wouldn't fall. It's a lovely legend. I hope it's true. We'll find out one day. But whether or not the details are true, Jesus was so proud that Antipas counted the cost of compromise that he calls him by name in this verse. Wouldn't it be cool to see your name written there? You know, I'm so proud of Kevin and Jen. You know, they persevered through. Wouldn't that be awesome? And he sets Antipas as an example to the church to never compromise with the pagan culture, no matter what the cost. And after this affirmation, he goes on to give the rest of his evaluation. He says, nevertheless, here comes the sword, right? I have a few things against you, he says. There are some who, among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you have all also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. To understand the teaching of Balaam, we actually have to go back to the book of Numbers. Balaam was a non-Israelite prophet for hire as Israel was leaving Egypt and moving into the promised land. King Balak was a Moabite king, and he was terrified of the masses of Israelites coming across the desert at him. So he hires Balaam to curse them because he knows Balaam hears from God, and Balaam does hear from God. But God doesn't let Balaam curse them. Balaam, Balaam actually, every time he opens his mouth to speak, a huge, beautiful blessing comes out over Israel. So, since he couldn't curse them because the, the king was getting mad, he's like, I hired you to curse them. He tells the king, look, I know a way. I can't curse them. I've tried. All you have to do is get the Israelite men to cavort with the Moabite women, and they will break the covenant they're under with God, both with sexual behavior and with eating meat sacrificed to the idols. So there'd be both, their bodies would be participating in idol worship. And God had commanded them that they were not to intermarry, they were not to have sexual relations, they were not to give themselves to worship another God at all. Because God knows that those are not gods. Pagan gods are at their very best, nothing. And at their very worst, demons from hell. That if you attach yourself to, your life will be a mess. Yeah, that's true. I heard an amen over here. Thank you. And this was detestable to God. His people were to live purely for him. Balaam knew mixing with Canaanite women would in time separate them from the covenant, and God would punish them, and he did, and 22,000 people died that day. That was the terrible cost of their compromise. Something dies when we compromise with sin. Something dies. So Jesus says, listen, you're starting to do this. You're starting to mix your lies with the pagans. You're starting to say, it's no big deal. I'm covered by the blood. I'm free. Jesus has set me free. I can do whatever I want. Right? Does that sound familiar, by the way? We got this going on in our culture. So he tells them this is not acceptable. They need to repent. They need to rethink their ways or face consequences. What was the cost of this compromise? Well, if we take Balaam's story to heart, the compromise could be dire. 
And the same was true for those who were following the practices of the Nicolaitans. We don't really know what they were, but again, there's some church history where the early church fathers have a feel or wrote about and said that they believed they were blending pagan practices with Christian worship. Pagan practices with Christian worship. They were lax in following Jesus with their choices. But whatever the specifics of these Nicolaitan practices were, they were associated with the temple worship of the day. They were associated with pagan worship. And Jesus says he not only hates it, but he despises it. It's like the hardest word you can write. There's no room for compromise with any spiritual practices that are not of God. So you might ask me, how can this possibly impact me? I'm not eating meat sacrificed to idols. I'm not going and having sex with temple prostitutes. Like, how can this possibly apply to Americans today? There are no animal sacrifices in America. Well, there may not be in America, but there are animal sacrifices in other parts of the world, and they are linked to other deities. God does not ask us to burn sacrifices to him. Jesus was the perfect and final sacrifice. His blood covers all our sin for anyone who has recognized that he is who he says he is, the first and the last, the one who died and is living, and the one who has the power of the double-edged sword. If you do not know Jesus, where he is covering everything you've ever done wrong in your life, and you want to get into this covenant with him, this is a wonderful opportunity please come and see me or Rich or anybody who's praying over there and we would love to show you how to connect with the living God to break the, the stuff that is not him off your life. Jesus wants his followers to avoid the practice of society that violates his teaching, right? We're not to be sexually immoral and that means, this is not gonna make me popular today, God places his approval and blessing only on sex that occurs within a, between a man and a woman in marriage. And adhering to that statement does not make us popular in society. As a matter of fact, it can be very upsetting. But if we are to honor God as priests in his kingdom and not compromise with the culture, that is what Jesus teaches. In Genesis and in Matthew, God blesses the marriage bed and defines marriage as when a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to a wife and the two are united as one. That's what Jesus said marriage is. And there's a cost to compromising with our culture. Another application of this letter is going to make some of you mad, even madder than I just did. I know because when I was told this by Christians, I was mad, big time mad. But God has opened my ears so I can hear differently and I'm hoping that you will hear me out. We are not to participate in any form of idol worship or blending our beliefs with other spirituality. That's the word that we hear today, spirituality. I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Like, and what does that say? That, that elevates somebody and says, I'm a very spiritual person. Well, I got to be honest, guys. If it's not Jesus, there's only one other spirit. <laughs> right? So if you're not connected to Jesus, what's your spirituality? And, and that's the deception. Right? Just like in, in the Asclepion. Let's, let snakes crawl all over us. There's deception. God's enemy is a deceiver and he imitates God. He imitated Moses in the desert. He imitates the presence. And when you're doing spiritual things, there is a presence. 
Now, if you're really sensitive, it's kind of creepy. Right? Thank you for nodding. So, right? It's creepy. But you figure, well, this is what spirituality is, so I'm going for it because I want to be spiritual. Jesus has such better stuff for us. There is no salvation, and no matter how beautiful a spiritual practice might be, there's no salvation without Jesus. No atonement for the sin. <sighs> Listen, there's no true spirituality without the Holy Spirit. Any other spirituality is plainly idolatry. And yet so many Christians are dabbling in the modalities of spirituality that don't belong to God. They are facsimiles. And Christians need to contemplate the cost of this kind of compromise. It does not bring us closer to God. And it might separate us from him if we close our ears. Okay, one of the most common avenues of false spirituality we see creeping into our culture is transcendental meditation and yoga. I could stand up here and do the entire asana for you. I practiced it for 15, 20 years. I loved yoga. It was a sweet, lovely way to get strong and balanced. I loved it. And I was concerned because my best friend came up to me and said, you can't do that. It's idolatry. And I'm like, oh, you're so legalistic. Get out of my face. I am pure, pure at heart, right? I can do anything. So I sought God, I sought God, I sought Christians. I sought Christians, I really wanted them to like me. And the Christians that I wanted to like me were the ones who said, eh, it's meat sacrifice to idols like Paul talks about. No big deal if you do it, it's fine. I do it all the time, it's fine. So I did it. I thought I had God's clearance. I got words from two people. That was confirmation for me. 15 years, not only did I practice yoga, but here's the hard part. I taught it. I taught it to my class full of actors. And I watched. I watched them choose the spirituality of yoga and Eastern practices and leave Jesus because it was too hard. They wanted what they could get without the obligation of being under someone. They wanted their autonomy. And I taught them that it was fine, that God would be fine with it. I just pray for mercy on my life. Yoga is deeply intertwined with pagan practices of Buddhism, Hinduism, and Eastern mysticism, and it seeks a spirituality that is not God. And it is slowly taking over the spirituality of our nation. I know, because like, I told you, I've lost so many students to it. I want to read you a statistic from Statista.com. It says, yoga is increasingly popular among adults in the United States, particularly young adults. The number of people doing yoga has ex um, in the United States has experienced a steady increase since 2010. So in 2010, 21 million Americans were doing yoga. By 2021, 34.4 million America, uh, people in America, a 63.8% increase in yoga participants in the country. And my friends are all talking about, like, I'm going to do this in yoga. I'm going to do yoga six times a week. This is how I'm going to be fit. And they're falling further and further from the truth. And I'll tell you this too, when I stopped doing yoga, I had to go through a significant deliverance. Like Jess and I prayed in the airport for about a half an hour and we missed our flight. And it was difficult 
and it took time. But I have to tell you, the peace and freedom and clarity has no comparison. So here, if you have been dabbling in some of these things, thinking it was fine, you have to listen to God. I could not agree to give it up until God himself, while I was doing salute to the sun in my living room, worshiping him, by the way, thinking it was okay, I heard the Holy Spirit so clearly say, stop. And I felt the slime of the practice that I had never experienced before. And he said to me, where I'm taking you, there can be no compromise. And that was about four years before I became a pastor here. So I'm inviting you, if this is your thing, will you come and join us on that transformation weekend and let us help break any attachments that the enemy might have attached to you? There are plenty of other ways to exercise, to learn balance, and to stretch without compromising God's command to stay clear of pagan prep. So let's look at what Jesus has for those who refuse to compromise with their culture. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who's victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. What is the hidden manna? See, apocalypse. He's saying, amen. I am so grateful. Now, scholars differ on what this might mean, but it clearly means bread from heaven, right? And who is the bread of heaven? Jesus himself. He's hidden from those who compromise their beliefs, but he's revealed to those who seek him with all their hearts. And only when we can realize everything in the universe is founded in Jesus, that he's created everything, and all spirituality needs to go to him, we can't really understand the significance of this promise, this gift of him. No compromise is worth the cost of losing him. He also says, I'll give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. And I'm thinking, there's much nicer things I'd rather have from you than a white stone. I mean, I got those in my backyard. But in this culture, a white stone had many meanings. According to scholars, it could signify a decisive vote in one's favor. You win. A judgment of innocence instead of a black stone in a jar. A white stone was put in a jar, which would keep you from uh, being condemned. A reprieve from death. If you carried a white stone, you could have safe passage. Um, A celebratory welcome for a victor after a race. An honorable status with free privileges. So, as we conclude here, Jesus promises to the one who refuses to compromise with the world these things, his favor, his acquittal of everything we've ever done wrong in his sight, eternal life, a safe passage to heaven, a welcome home for the victor, an honorable status in his kingdom, and an eternal home with God with an identity that is only known by him and us. That's intimacy. This is the reward of a life devoted to worshiping God without compromise. To love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love others as ourselves. Sometimes compromise shows love, but sometimes it erodes our connection with God. Jesus is our freedom, our complete spirituality, and our source for everything that's good and holy. We're going to do something a little different here today. I'm going to give you about three minutes to just sit with the Lord and ask him, am I compromising with anything? 
is there anything you want me to let go of? You know, Jess Mel once said to me, if we just can say, I'll lay it down for you, Jesus, we're okay. Whatever the thing is. Are we ready? So I'm going to give us three minutes to just meditate and listen to the Holy Spirit, and then we're going to come back and take communion together. Father, I pray for your presence in this time. Come with your double-edged sword, Jesus, and cut the truth from the lie. Show us the way to freedom and break that stuff off of us that is hindering our lives. In Jesus' name.